This is 91.7 The Edge, WSUW, and here at The Edge, we have partnered with UWWTV to bring you live on The Edge, a multimedia concert series. We're bringing you some of the best up-and-coming local music acts, so tune in at 8 p.m. every other Thursday for in-studio performances and interviews. So this is Stay Woke. We come to you every Wednesday at noon, and today we have a very special show because as so many issues in the world become you become inundated inundated um with so many different images from the mass media and so some important issues get lost i believe and so we're going to we're going to be talking with my guest today he's a history professor here at uh, UW Whitewater and he's done a lot of research in african countries especially nigeria he did his um doctoral dissertation in nigeria um dr adam Pad- paddock Thank you. Thanks for having me. <laughs> Thank you for coming. I had to get you. Tried to get your last name. I kind of stuttered th- through the last name there, but uh, I tried to get it right. <laughs> it's fine. <laughs> you know, I actually when you came in because I was like, eh, it's probably a couple of different ways people messed that up. Well, I'm sure you didn't. Uh, you didn't um, turn it into a fish, so you did fine. <laughs> I appreciate that. As we always do here on Stay Woke. We start with the stats. So here's why you need to stay woke. According to the Wall Street Journal, over the past 60 years, at least one trillion of development-related aid has been transferred from rich countries to Africa. Yet, real per capita income today is lower than it was in the 1970s, and more than 50% of the population live on less than a dollar a day, a figure that has nearly doubled in two decades. As you suggested this topic to me and I started to do my research, I was shocked, first of all, to learn that foreign aid more so hinders African countries than it does help, which is odd, you know, considering all the outcry to send over money and send over resources um, and help those countries that seem to be struggling. And then secondly, in my research, I found, which was really, I guess, just just me being ignorant to the situation was that aid, I thought aid was free. I thought it was like uh, grants, but aids can be grants or loans. Mm. And... I was just flabbergasted. It says, um, it says African countries pay close to twenty billion in debt repayment at the expense of like African education and healthcare. So, some of these countries have to pay this money back. Yeah. So there's a there's two ways to look at aid, and um, and hopefully by the end of the show this will you know be pretty apparent that there's aid that deals with um, immediate sort of types of conditions. Okay. But then there's aid that leads to permanent solutions. Mm. And unfortunately, what we find is most of the money goes to the first rather than the second. And that's part of the issue. But in terms of the loans, yeah, this is a huge problem because – and this often started with the World Bank. Mm, right? These African countries, they would get these loans for development. And it's kind of like your student loans. right? Nobody wants to hear about this, but (laughs) it looks like it's a low interest rate. But the way it's compounded and the number of years you take to get it back, you know, African countries were, have been paying back four to five times wow. the actual amount that they borrowed. Wow. And so this hinders the long-term development because it ends up having, you know, a backwards, you know, a reverse kind of effect, yeah. Yeah, effect on it. Yeah. Wow. So one of the biggest things, of course, which most people probably can assume re- the reason why foreign aid would hurt some of these African countries is corruption. I mean, that's like the... Bing, bing, the word you know you throw out there in the in the NBCs and the MSNBCs when you know if you want to do a story about this that's what they're going to focus on the corruption but it's really terrible matter of fact um, I had did previous research but this morning I was just looking at other things just to make sure that I covered all my bases as I was talking today and and I went on um, the 
it's a website called The Independent, and it was talking about the country. This was the the headline, The Country on the Verge of Famine, Where Six Billion Has Gone Missing. And it was talking right. about South Sudan uh -huh. and the reasons why it's going bankrupt and the corruption, it says, thought to total four billion over the past five years. Right. With the politicians and everything. Yeah, and there's a couple uh, parts to the story of corruption, I think, that are important. In some cases, there are African leaders who have made bad decisions. Mm -hmm. And in some cases, it's actually driven also by foreign influence. Oh, wow. Um, because uh, Zimbabwe is a good example of this. Um, they've had a dictator, you mm -hmm. know, for decades, uh, Robert Mugabe, who's mm -hmm. just, you know, really brutal, you know, bad <laughs> stuff going on. And um, he was able to stay in power. They, we came really close to getting mm -hmm. rid of him in the early 2000s, 2005, six mm -hmm. time period. And this was during the Tony Blair administration in Britain. And Tony Blair came up with this, his administration came up with this new idea of sending more aid to Africa. Some people wow. call it like a neo-civilizing mission, this new idea that these Africans, they can't solve the issue themselves, so let's help them do it. But So they send these uh, millions and millions of pounds, currency, okay. to Zimbabwe. And what happened is rather than go to the people that needed it, because they have a dictator, right. it gets confiscated. And the dictator used that is bribes to keep people in line so he could stay in power. And so it's for sometimes it's hard for people. They want to get involved and do something. But you also have to pay attention to the kind of program because in this case, it's only led to more difficulty for people in Zimbabwe wow. is this guy that really needs to be out of power, yeah. right? It's helped it's us actually stay in power by that aid. Wow. I didn't, I didn't think about that, that the aid. So he's, <laughs> he's, in control mm -hmm. of that, which means he's in control of how some of these people eat and operate. Right, exactly. Wow, and, and the finances of the country. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, I think another, another part of that that's really important to think about is historically, you know, Western countries, we think of the U.S. or Britain as promoting democracy, right? Mm -hmm. That's how it's stated today. But if you look at the history going back to the 60s and 70s, Britain and the U.S. were more than happy to make agreements with dictators, so long as they were not communist. Yeah. And that kind of has spilled over into more long-term issues for a lot of these countries. Yeah, that's what I was uh, That's what I was going to kind of ask you, was was it, as far as the U.S., did it benefit them that these African countries were so, I guess, desolate or still in poverty? Like, because I just can't, um, you know, when you talk about foreign help and, and doing things, it's usually what can we get out of the situation? Mm -hmm. And so I just think about, you know, what role does the U.S. play? Like, is it because they can't get anything out of the situation? They're not trying to help get these dictators out? Or is it that their interests are elsewhere in the Middle East, um, as people would say? And so I don't know. I don't know if you know. It, it could probably be a variety of things. You know, you'd have to look at the individual country. You know, mm -hmm. And, of course, um, the way that politics work, you know, international politics, is that often countries, of course, make decisions based on what they think is best for their own citizens, right? Nice. Um, that, that's just the way decisions are made. Um, so, you know, that's, you know, that, that's a part of it. Yeah. And then it was, I was just going through some things where it showed um, a couple of reasons why foreign aid hurts. And even actions that are meant to, I guess, help people can sometimes hurt them. I read something that was interesting where it's talked about, like, if a mosquito net maker has, like, 10 employees, and then they're serving 15 relatives, like, they're taking care of 15 relatives, and then the Western, like, a Western government donates $100,000 of free mosquito nets. 
Well, that just put out the employees who were, you know, in the mosquito net making business. And then in 15 years, they're going to need more mosquito nets when those are gone. But now they don't have anybody to make more uh, mosquito nets. So you become the cycle of poverty begins again. Yeah, exactly. And that's a huge, huge problem. And this is why the kind of aid is so important of, of what's being done. And I think that um, in a lot of cases, you know, malaria has some negative effects right, mm-hmm. on, on people regardless. But I think sometimes Westerners over-exaggerate it because it's so dangerous to us. Mm-hmm. But um, people in West Africa, for example, have had their own ways of treating malaria okay. for centuries. Mm-hmm. And they even have some resistance to it. It's definitely, you know, for younger children, it's, a, it's of course, always a concern. But for adults, you know, much, much less so. Wow. In some ways, but what you see here, though, is this interaction between not just you know what governments choose to do, but really where the points of interaction here are between either the foreign aid uh, organizations mm-hmm. and or also transnational companies. Oh, and, and that's wow. an issue because transnational companies exist outside of really the legal control of any one entity. Oh, wow. Does that make sense? A little bit, so, yeah. So because they're transnational, they don't just answer to any one country. They can kind of exist in this area where in some countries they've done, you know, like Dutch Shell, for example. Yeah. It's pretty accepted that they had had some Nigerian um, diplomat or uh, politicians assassinated at one point. Oh, wow. So there are these other ways in which even transnational companies are interacting, mm-hmm. right, based on their own interests, oil or otherwise, uh, in terms of what they're trying to get out. Yeah. And so there's also this relationship that happens that isn't even connected to a p- specific country, so to speak. Oh, wow. Um, and then, so as I was reading some of the things, I, I thought to myself, well, how come people just can't take the money directly to Africa, okay? Just bypass these dictators and, and all these different people blocking them. And I read where... They just gave me an example. Like, let's just say, for example, in Cameroon, it takes a potential investor around 426 days to perform 15 procedures to gain a business license. But then in the U.S., it takes you 40 days and 19 procedures. And they said in South Korea, it takes 17 days and 10 procedures. So just the process of trying to even become an investor and start different things would take forever. So much red tape that a person would have to go through. Yeah, and that really varies by country. Um, Nigeria, for example, which I'm most familiar with, yeah. I, when you meet somebody, you don't ask them, what is your business? You ask them, what are your businesses? Wow. Um, because women, they have their own businesses. Husbands, they'll have their own businesses. So it's very entrepreneurial nice. in Nigeria. And they have one of the fastest growing economies in the world. Nice. Um, so Nigeria is probably on the side that they don't really need much aid. Yeah. Right. <laughs> um, but they're doing quite well. But then you have other places where there are these more significant barriers. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, they talked about Ethiopia. Their um, government budget is 90% aid, and then only 2% of the country population has access to mobile phones. That's right. Yeah, I don't know how for Ethiopia. Yeah, I guess maybe. I I don't really know uh, what the stats are. And it it really probably depends upon where you go Mm -hmm. in that country. You know, Nigeria, for example, I mean, everybody has one or two cell phones, just like here. Mm-hmm. And so that, that is another thing that really varies by country. And um, But the interesting thing, though, is the Internet, especially the wireless Internet and smartphones, are actually offering many Africans uh, more opportunities. Wow. Because um, wireless technology allows them to skip the infrastructure 
cost that it takes to put in landlines mm. for internet. So it is a way in which uh, we're seeing a lot of growth in Africa nice. related to the cell phone technology uh, because it's a way for more people to get connected to internet and to business nice. without having to, the government have to spend a lot on yeah. infrastructure. Nice. And that, that kind of brings up the point where in most of my research, what I learned was most of the countries that were able to, I guess, I don't want to say pull themselves out of poverty, but, you know, make economic strides did so more or less without the help of aid, the foreign mm -hmm. aid, more yeah. so with sustainable um, ideas. And so. And I think one thing that you're pointing up here, and Ethiopia is a good example of this, you know, why has Ethiopia had so much trouble? Right. Right. And one of the answers is that in many places in Africa where we do find um, issues of some poverty or those kinds of issues, it is often happening in places where there's conflict. Nice. Right? Mm -hmm. Which makes sense because if there's yeah. conflict, if people are, you know, dealing with violence, it's difficult to work the land or, or do whatever your business is. And what you mentioned about South Sudan, you know, a lot of people from South Sudan, Ethiopia is where they were fleeing mm. across the border. And so some of Ethiopia's problems, right, are connected to what happens in Sudan because this puts pressure on the land when you have lots of refugees and people fleeing one place, right? right? They're crossing borders to escape, but that creates a burden. Yeah. Right, for another country. And the Congo is the same way, right? It's the mm -hmm. conflict often there that is driving um, the issues. Yeah. And this is also where the transnational companies come in because the conflict in the Congo is also largely driven by one resource that uh, transnational companies are trying to get out of the Congo, which is mm -hmm. Colton. It's an item used to make smartphones. Mm. And it's very rare. It's, it's There's only uh, so many very significant deposits of this currently are being uh, mined. And so it's very interesting how, you know, the sense of globalization or connectedness yeah. across borders. Of the, you know, my smartphone could have had material that came from the Congo, yeah. for example. These yeah. things aren't uh, separate. They're very much connected. Yeah, that's kind of why I wanted to do this as well, because I, w I was going to tell people in the beginning of the show that contrary to popular belief, when you hear um, when you hear anything about Africa is usually negative, but if you actually did your research, it's a continent full of natural resources that people are killing each other for, and dictators are making certain rules so when Western countries want to come over, that's kind of how they're standing their power because they, they kind of, they're in control of these natural resources. And so it's interesting that you bring up that the Congo would have something so rare, and here it is, these transnational companies, of course, they want in on it. And I wonder how that affects that affects that that country as well. Yeah, I think you hit on on two things, right? One is that absolutely, you know, if there's dictators or corrupt gov governments in some way, or somebody that's trying to stay in power, you know, they benefit from these relationships with um, with these transnational companies, right? They're both getting what they want, right, out out of the relationship, often to the detriment of the people. Um, but the other thing that I think you brought up at the very beginning that's really important is that while these issues are in the news and all over the place, um, it's actually a very small piece of what Africa is mm -hmm. or what is going on in Africa. That, you know, just like if you watch the Madison News or Milwaukee News, right, local news, it's all going to be about what shootings or right. what crimes happen. Well, the the international news operates the same way. There's lots of success stories going on in African countries right now, but often our view is skewed just by what we see in the news, right. which is a partial part of the story. Exactly, and you brought up an interesting point that 
like I said earlier, you you just become bombarded with these different images, and I it's not I can't blame it on the media because you have only a certain amount of time air in on the airwaves, and you're going to get out the one that you think people want to hear about, which is oh, there's another bombing in in um, Africa. You know they bombed the Doctors Without Borders station. I was just reading that today, and so they're going to get those stories out that they that they think are newsworthy. But you don't hear, like you said, the success stories because they might not find it pertinent to Westerners. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that doesn't have it. We're not connected to um, those places, and so they don't report on it. But it kind of, like you said, it skews our... So you need, I think you need that balance, at least some something. You need three or four stories, especially if we're in a 24-hour news cycle. I think you can afford to, <laughs> right. to, to throw on positive image as well because it helps to, to form a... Um, I guess, a, a greater picture, and then doing shows like what I'm trying to do is showing, you know, and also show that, hey, foreign aid, that you, a lot of people cry about, you know, throw more foreign aid out there, but they don't know that it's not really helping, it's actually hurting people, and, you know, other what are other ways in which you can help um, someone, even if you're, you can't go physically to Africa. Right. Yeah, no, I think with the Doctors Without Borders, as you bring up uh, a good point, and maybe we can talk about evil yeah. a little bit as well, mm-hmm. but, you know, I would never condone anybody doing a bombing. Right. Right. I mean, I, that's not the solution. Right. right. However, it's also understand why would a program like Doctors Without Borders be seen in a negative light in Africa? And this kind of goes back to this difference between aid that deals with just immediate mm-hmm. issues but or aid that le- helps lead to permanent solutions. Right. You know, the budget for Doctors Without Borders is over $610 million a year. Wow. You know, and, and they help people, you know. But here's the thing. Is that money best spent? This is the question, right, the mm-hmm. Africans ask. Is that money best spent on doctors to come here for a few a few months or whatever and, and give some aid? Or is that better spent on training our own people to be good doctors, right. to build clinics here that 365 days a year, right, they're going right. to treat people? Does that make sense? Yeah. And this is part of the conflict, the, this idea of just trying to do this immediate aid, but without any really long-term right. solutions, right? Because right. the per- the country ends up into this cycle where they right. now still they're relying, still relying on that program, yeah. which this it kind of relates to the welfare system here, in which it, it cripples certain communities that are heavily dependent on welfare because it puts you in a cycle where you're heavily dependent and you're and you're always going to need that aid if you don't find the resources and that sustainable income that you need to get off of a welfare system. So it's it works actually very similar. And this is a comparison, not complete comparison. There's, yeah, you know, many differences, but one thing here is you you can see in terms of race and racism mm-hmm. how this plays out both in either black American communities or also in Africa, mm-hmm. is this idea of um, the, this perception that sometimes people get, well, th- they don't want help. They just mm-hmm. want you to hand them to them. And that isn't the case at all, right? B- both black Americans, Africans, they want the long-term solutions. They want to be empowered right. by long-term solutions. But the kinds of programs that are most often used don't allow that to happen, right. and that's the issue. Now, explain, I tried to do, I tried to look up Doctors Without Borders. Now, I've heard of Doctors Without Borders. I'm sure many people have heard of Doctors Without Borders, and I see, like, they're, of course, they're all in different countries. I think their base I saw was, like, in Switzerland or um, Geneva, Switzerland. 
but it, so exactly what is it? Do they stay in countries for a certain amount of time and help them, and then they leave, or are they permanently stationed there? What? Yeah, I don't know all the details about Doctors Without Borders, but it's generally run is sort of people get paid. Okay. Uh, the average pay I think is set at something like seventeen hundred dollars a month. Okay. Uh, for those who give you know their expertise to help, right. so. You know, they are um, people who participate, you know, doctors and so on, are volunteering in a certain extent because that's, of course, pays way yeah. lower than what a doctor would normally get paid. So yeah. it is seen as sort of a charity thing, charity. but there is some compensation. And I think how they interact with different countries might vary. Okay. But generally the format is that these people rotate out, that they rotate where they go. Nice. Um, and, and, but I do, I do think they have a variety of different programs, some that aren't bad. I mean, I'm not saying that this stuff isn't doesn't serve some right. sort of purpose, exactly. but that it needs the other more permanent um, solution as well. I had, um, oh yeah, because we're talking about why foreign aid hurts certain African countries, and so I found certain things where they talk about the positive aid. I don't want to be certainly negative for the entire show, but yeah. it, the, the positive that I found was, um, it was one quote that talked about in the, for the Ebola crisis, it said Sierra Leone did not even have enough ambulances to support its people if it were not for foreign aid in that situation. Maybe up to 80% of the citizens would have passed away. Talked about in 2004, the tsunami in Asia, a supported scholarship since certain African girls to school. So right. there is some, you know. Oh, absolutely. And I have actually some other programs probably that people have never even heard about that I can mention. Yeah, and, and this is the... Um, well, first of all, maybe we say something about Ebola since you bring it up. Yeah. And then um, definitely one issue here is that when there are these significant time-sensitive crises, foreign aid, that's when foreign aid makes the most sense, right? Like um, earthquake in Haiti, for example, or something. I mean, these things, that makes sense, right, right. aid. Um, it's these other places where, uh, you, where the cause mm-hmm. of the crisis is in the structure of the politics or the the society in which people live, that needs a long-term solution, right? Right. Does that make sense? Right. Um, In terms of Ebola, it's widely uh, Mm over-exaggerated, actually. Um, And I think that was partly because of what happened in Texas with some people coming to the U.S., right, that had been working on this, and some nurses died in Texas. Um, But, you know, just some statistics. Um, These are a little bit old, so they might not be completely update, but something about 2.02%. 0.02% of people in Guinea were affected by Ebola. Wow. In Liberia, 0.2% of the population was affected by Ebola. And in Sierra Leone, 0.1% wow. has been affected by Ebola. And um, so, yes, I think that um, we're talking about, you know, something less than 10,000 people, um, probably somewhere around there that have been affected by this in those three countries. Um, but I think... Ebola itself, I don't want to minimize it, right, because mm-hmm. it is dangerous. Right. Um, but it's it, it wasn't this mass, you know, destroying every fat, you know, everybody affected. And in fact, if you look at news in those African countries, um, some people question whether Ebola was real. Oh yeah. And people in the West say, well, how could they do that? Well, it's because it's not everybody yeah. that's affected by this. It's a small percentage, actually, right. dangerous, but a mm-hmm. small percentage. And um, the main issue, I think, with Ebola, one of the big things that came out of this is uh, Bob Geldof, 
um, mm-hmm. famous for We Are the World and Do They Know It's Christmas. Mm-hmm. A couple of years ago, re-released Do They Know It's Christmas, and trying to get money for the Ebola crisis. And a lot of Africans criticize that mm-hmm. um, because the song is very racist wow. and very biased <laughs> and very ignorant in some mm-hmm. ways of um, Africa. And mm-hmm. um, A country like Nigeria probably has more Christians than most of Western Europe yeah. because their population is so high, for example. And so, of course, you're right. Right, they know it's Christmas. But the main issue is that African musicians had already made songs about Ebola. Mm -hmm. And their songs actually educated people, uh, like uh, Ebola in Town, which was an English song, and then uh, Africa Stop Ebola, which is a French song, Mm. a French language song. And both of those told people about how to avoid getting infected, right, and how it was dangerous and these kinds of things. So actually, not just entertained and made money that got donated, but actually educated the people about the disease and how to be safe. Right. That's interesting. I wonder if was he trying to necessarily help or was it a play for him to even get funds? That was the argument is that nobody knew where that money really ever ended up going. Mm -hmm. And people argued that he uh, was using this just to try to put himself in the limelight again as an older artist, you know, that isn't popular anymore, trying to, you know, still hold on to some some fame. That's, That's one criticism. I wanted to get your opinion on when I just do all this research and I see the the African dictators that are allowed to kind of run rampant. Like, and even in the story that I found, it talked about, you know, where's this money going? How did it disappear? And it talked about the political leaders, the South Sudanese individuals that had homes listed as $3 million in Washington, D.C. And, and I just wondered... Why aren't there any, I guess, restrictions on the aid that's given to certain countries as far as, okay, this is what the money should be going towards, and if it doesn't, these are the consequences. I wonder, you know, what do you think about why maybe there's no... Well, I think the main issue there is power, right? How how do you do that? Hmm. Because um, we're talking about different nations here, right? And so obviously if an NGO is donating monies of some kind... Um, they don't have the power once the money is given to to punish, oh, right? Okay, that that leader or that state, and and, it, and it's not so different for countries as well. You know, the U.S. government can chastise them and say, mm-hmm. you know, why'd you do that? But at the end of the day, what power do they really have yeah. to punish that person? You know, yeah. I, I think that's one of these transnational issues. It's why some countries argue for more U.S. interaction or other countries to give more power to something like an international court that could deal with those kinds of things, maybe. Um, but gen- that's not, right? The international court actually has very little, little mm-hmm. areas in which it's engaged. So I think that's part of the issues is once the money is given, then there's really no, no structure to enforce wow. Yeah, what people do. So countries like the U.S., Britain, and all, they that feed into the foreign aid, they give... They're not. Are they required to to give uh, foreign aid? Because I know like countries have come together and say, okay, this is the amount that we're supposed to give. And and, and actually, I I remember this years ago, but then doing my research, you know, it kind of reminded me that they have like a certain percentage that they're supposed to meet, but a lot of countries don't live up to that. Like they just say they, they're supposed to meet it to point seven. They don't often make it to that amount that they've said that they would. And so I just wonder, are they, are they do they have to do this, or just out of the goodness of the country's hearts? Okay, um, so you're going to get me to a, con- a controversial point here um, because, um, you know, I have a, maybe a cynical view on this. Okay, right? so I love the question cynical is, views. 
Now, what I'm saying about these two different types of aid, you know, the temporary one that doesn't lead to solutions and the more long-term solutions, most of the money goes to, like I mentioned, the first one that doesn't lead to long-term solutions. And the question is, well, why? Because people know that it doesn't lead to long-term solutions. This is no secret by now. Exactly. And so why do people still do that? Why does so much money still go to those programs? And I think it's very important to look at this because... Generally, and th- this is something that came up with the Rwandan genocide, for example. Okay. So I'll just use this as sort of an yeah. illustration is that people were, con- you know, lamented, right, in the U.S., for example, how terrible this was. And people would watch the news at night, you know, while they had dinner or whatever, and they would see this. they say, oh, that's, that's so bad, right, that mm-hmm. that's happening to those people. But neither really much on an individual level or national level did the U.S. or Britain or anybody else do anything about that conflict. It okay. ran its course, and it was other... Uh, Africans who ended that conflict. Okay. And so what the issue here is, is that I think the easy thing is to just give money. Oh, you're giving aid to Africa. Let me donate something. Mm-hmm. Without really taking the time, which is difficult to look at the details. And what this does, and this is where I'll be cynical, is that first kind of aid of giving money to an organization like Doctors Without Borders, whether the Pacific program is good or not, um, it makes rich white people who are doing this feel good about themselves. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, really, yeah. I mean, I mean, it sounds cynical, but yeah, people no. do this because they want to think that they're doing something good, that they're having mm-hmm. a positive impact. Um, and it makes them feel good. Yeah. Uh, regardless of the consequences, unfortunately. And then if you're standing in front of a camera, you can always say, you know, this is, this is what I'm doing. I'm, I'm sending money over there to Africa. I'm, I'm helping open out which which makes a lot of sense as you were talking i just thought about just the u.s and and their role and and why no one has made this such a big deal well hey you know we're giving such and such money and these african dictators are doing certain things i just wonder why if you really wanted to change, I wonder why the U.S. haven't hasn't made such a big deal of it, like in the media saying, "Hey, mm-hmm. let's pay attention to why these certain things have been allowed to happen, and you know we don't have, let's just say, power to stop it, and so let's bring light to the issue so everyone else can care." I just wonder yeah. why it's well, kind of been swept under the rug. Right, and I, I think there's two different philosophies, right, on how to deal with these things, and. Um, I don't want to say that all aid is bad. Right. Right. I'm not saying that because I think there are spaces uh, in one good program, because we said we'd be positive. One one good program um, is something called uh, Women for Women International. Nice. And this helped rebuild Rwanda because what women would do, um, for example, uh, in Britain or other the U.S., they would donate money. And they would have Rwandan women submit a business plan. Hmm. for what their business idea was. And those business plans that passed, they would donate the startup money for that business. Nice. And to this like day, that. Rwandan women are actually really the bedrock of the Rwandan economy. Wow. And so that's a program that works. So I, I don't want to say all aid is bad, but I will emphasize this, is that maybe the answer is more complex. Maybe some of these countries should do nothing. Hmm. You look at what happens in Zimbabwe with the British. It would have been better if the British had not done anything. Mm-hmm. Because sometimes it goes with this racial ideology, this ideology that we think, well, the U.S. has to do something. Or Britain, these other countries, they have to do something because they can't solve the problem themselves. And I think that's the wrong approach. I think without interference, without the negative aid, without the negative political interference or transnational companies that are could be interfering, I think Africans are more than capable of solving the problems on their own. Yeah. The problem is ever since the slave trade, 
there's been a long history with a lot of changes over time of Western interference. And often that tends to be more towards the advantage of countries outside of Africa rather than their own countries. And so it, in some cases, inhibits them from being able to arrive at their the solutions that they need. Yeah. Do you think um, Western countries or well-developed countries that derive some of their resources f- from Africa, do you think that they hurt hurt some of the countries in Africa as far as just what they get out of the deal versus what the African countries get out of the deal? It depends. You know, if there's corruption going on, then probably. But that's not always has to be the case. Okay. And I think that's a good point, is it's that it's not that these companies don't have to exist, mm-hmm. right? It's just there has to be, you know, this sense of what are the rules of the game that are fair, yeah. right? Not talking about socialism, but just talking about what is fair, right? Yeah. What is appropriate? What is, right? Based on everything has a set of structures or rules, right, <laughs> yeah. for how things work. And there needs to be a better set of rules mm-hmm. that says you can't just, you know, get away with having somebody killed, for example, in Nigeria. Yeah. Or you can't just, you know, uh, take these resources without without proper con- fair compensation, right, for the business transaction. Yeah. And I, I wonder, um, what's your opinion? And you can just relate this to Nigeria since you're familiar with that. Do you think a democratic country is is what's best for the for different countries in Africa or do you think you know whatever the, the people would decide would be best you know cuz a lot of times you see where western countries kind of force that democratic um ideology on other on others and so i wonder um in your opinion you can like i said you can talk about nigeria mm-hmm. i don't know if they're democratic or not um but whether or not that that's the right way to go to overthrow dictators or is it more so should be whatever the citizens feel it's correct. Well, I think that whenever, um, generally, whenever a country, whether it's the U.S., Britain, whatever, it doesn't matter, interferes in a country militarily to get rid of a dictatorship, mm-hmm. the problem is it often means they play a role in determining what the new government will be. And the problem is, is whenever a foreigner is determining what kind of government you're going to have, that government is not going to be seen as legitimate in most cases by the people who live wow. there. I mean, Take the comparison. What if somebody invaded the U.S., right, and forced a different (laughs) style of government? Nobody would accept that, right, because that's not our choice, right? Yeah. And so I I think democracy is a good thing. But the democracy to really have legitimacy has to come from the people who live there. They have to be invested. That was Thomas Jefferson's point, actually, if you look at (laughs) U.S. history, is that um, the democracy to be valid must come from the people, Mm. right, themselves. And and if democracy is people determining what that is – they can decide on something that we would not consider to be democratic. But if the, all the people decide on it, free and fair, then that's still democracy. Right. To, to an extent. To an extent, yeah, right. And, and some, some, a lot would argue that the U.S. is not so much democracy anymore. Well, it never was, really. <laughs> if you want to get technical, it's a republic. Mm. Right? It's a republic mm. uh, because technically the president, for example, is not elected by um, popular vote. Right. It's the Electoral College, right? Mm. So um, so there are some interesting points there. And, yeah. you know, I mean, for a long time in U.S. history, women couldn't vote. Right. You had to be a, land, a land-owning male, right, white male to vote. Um, and so that's important. That, and maybe that's an important thing to know is that even in the U.S., if you look at the history of slavery of um, immigrants who mm-hmm. were um, discrim- discriminated in a variety of ways and not considered white, like Irish at one point, what you find is that it's not democracy in the U.S. was not has not always been the same thing. 
Mm. And it wasn't always just created by these founding white fathers, but it's been a part of a negotiation Okay. as other people, right? Mm. Black Americans who fought for their civil liberties and their rights have helped redefine and define what democracy in the United States means. Right. And I think that's important, and and each country has to do that. Mm. And I think they have to have their citizens have to be free to engage in that, Mm -hmm. right? And that is where you get... You know, a legitimate government, a legitimate democracy is that it has to be contested. And sometimes people want to step right in and interfere. And sometimes you've got to let that be contested. Right. Kind of hands off situation. That's really interesting. I was thinking about as you were talking, I I was just thinking maybe the best aid would be, like you said, to use the resources and the information and help the people like, let's just say, for law, you know, train those people in in whatever, well, they would have to, that's kind of sketchy because they would have to know the laws of Nigeria or something. But b- having somebody that has an expertise and being able to train others and so mm-hmm. that they could help their community, their village, and so, you know, whether it's a trade, some, how to do something would probably be the best aid and the best form of use of money and time and, and things like that. No, and if you think about it, even in, in U.S. society, I don't think Africa is so different in this in the sense that um, there are some people, right, who are born poor, mm-hmm. and they make it. Right. But if you really look at the data, most people stay within the class in which they're born. Right. It's very difficult often to really make that jump, mm-hmm. you know, from, say, middle class, right, a blue-collar worker, and, and become rich like a Bill Gates or something. That's very rare, <laughs> yeah. right? Yeah. And so um, th- this is an important point because this is where that aid can lead to long-term solutions because if like that women from an international if that leads to these women going from low class to middle class chances are their the wealth that they create in their business is going to be there for their children yes right and so those children now are not going to be born poor right exactly. they're, they're, it's going to increase that middle class uh, sector and we all know that for a free economy for a capitalist economy that uh, middle class is fundamental right, mm-hmm. to the health of, of, of a democracy or of a capitalist system, right, free market capitalism. So. Right. And I wonder just how feasible it is. Let's just say, and I know some, some celebrities have done this, but I just don't know how feasible it is that if you went to a, a country in Africa and you saw an issue, I just wonder... How feasible, but I, I, it goes back to your point of something that's, you know, your immediate fix versus a sustainable um, solution. Because I just wonder, let's just say it, the roads were, were all terrible and you wanted to help build a, a better system, you know, pave the roads or something like that. I wonder would they be, if it's like an African dictator, would they be blocked from, from helping in, in certain ways like that? Or 10 years from now, would that role be terrible again and then you know then you would need more aid and I, I guess that kind of that kind of is the problem when I guess when people think about how they're going to help they want to help and they they help me do something immediately but like you said I don't think it's sustainable right that's the exact question is what happens when the road is not functioning and and the road is an important point because that's one of the things we always complain about when we go to Nigeria Mm -hmm. um, is some of the roads are not so good but you have to understand if for Nigeria it's a tropical climate so the amount of rainfall and the soil is different Mm. and in some cases it makes uh, road maintenance difficult and expensive um, but I, I was, uh, had a friend, he was in grad school at uh, Illinois Urbana-Champaign as a graduate student. He nice. was an engineer. 
and his research was working on new road materials that be, could be used in West Africa to make the roads longer lasting. And I, I haven't talked to him in a while, so yeah. I don't know where that's gone nice. or whether there were good. But this is my point back to there are solutions, and they're often the best ones are African solutions. Yeah. You know, there's even, um, there was an article that came out a few years ago in Nigeria, an engineering student in Nigeria, at a Nigerian university, um, built a prototype for a hybrid solar-powered car. Oh, wow. Which completely makes sense in, in you know, some place like Nigeria where you have sunlight yeah. 360 days a year, you know, pretty much wow. at some point of the day, right? <laughs> and so that makes sense, a solar-powered hybrid. And so I think there's lots of innovation mm-hmm. going on in – so these are the good stories, right? Yeah. That there's, there's many of these positive things. And most of the positive comes from uh, the African agency yeah. that's involved that's doing this, and that's an important part. In some cases, I guess what I'm saying is in some cases, that aid would better be going off directly to Africans who have their own programs because that's where you're probably going to find the most effective and long-lasting solutions. Right. I mean, because who knows their country better than the people that's living there? Yeah. (laughs) Which is, and I wonder how many people actually ask them what are their solutions. I wonder, you know, you often go to the high government officials or you just assume certain things like if you take a visit over there you may assume a, okay this is what they need a lot of times you want to force what works for you in your own country onto a different country right. and like you said like we don't know their soil you can't certain things that you have to know your re, you do your research and understand and talk to the people yeah absolutely and in fact that was a part of the disaster of colonial rule is mm. that they brought their farming techniques and it destroyed the land yeah you know uh, when you you know, some people don't realize this, but they, they just see poverty in Africa. And actually, poverty in Africa before colonial rule was no more a common problem than any place else based on your random you know, environmental issues, you know, drought, those kinds of things. But poverty in Africa is, a, is something that affects a lot of people, was a historically created one. Mm. And it's really tied to colonial rule, mm. specific politics and stuff, decisions that created that condition. You know what? We we need to have a whole show about that because that's something I'm I'm interested in. I'm currently reading a book uh, by Dr. Ivan Van Schertema. Uh They came before Columbus, the Africans that were in America. And so I'm, uh, that's a controversial one. I, I know some people. I, I know uh, it say there isn't quite enough evidence <laughs> to uh, prove that. I told you that. I like the controversy, but there's an argument, yeah, yeah. whether or not that happened. And so I have a, I have a lot of issues with history and what they and what the history books have said. So, <laughs> which is why I have a show called Stay Woke. <laughs> um, but I want before you get out of here because I know you got to go to you have to teach your own class and educate some of our people here. <laughs> but I wanted you to talk about this trip you're supposed to be taking to Ghana. Yeah, you know, I haven't found all the details about this, and this comes back to the Ebola thing. I I know a trip to Ghana, a student com- complained to me, um, I think it was maybe a year and a half ago or mm-hmm. something, that um, there was supposed to be a student trip to Ghana that was canceled. The impression that the student gave me at the time was it was because of fear over Ebola. Mm. Um, and I don't know if that was really the reason or not, and so oh, I don't okay. want to criticize anybody that was, um, you know, um, I feel like organizing that trip, but I would say this is that if it was because of a fear of Ebola, I would say that it was a terrible uh, tragedy actually to cancel that trip, um, because what people don't realize is how big Africa is. Yeah, and we're talking about a place that the yeah. United States can fit in at three and a half times plus. Wow. Okay, yeah. the Sahara Desert alone is almost as big as the lower forty-eight states. 
Wow. So um, people forget that. You know, my argument is that you're, you're more likely to get, um, even now, you'd be more likely to get Ebola going to, on spring break to Houston than you would be going to Ghana or uh, Nigeria. Wow. I In think- fact, Nigeria and Ghana both have been Ebola-free much longer than the United States. Nice. Nice. So the, the danger, sometimes the image is, well, this is this has happened in Africa, so this is an African problem. Right. No, it's a Sierra Leone, it's a Liberia, it's a Guinea problem. Mm-hmm. It's not a even a West African problem. So. Wow. Um, just really quick, tell me about some of the things. You've made many trips to Nigeria. What would you say, well, two things. What are their impressions of Western countries like the U.S.? And then what would you say that has kind of been blown out of proportion with with our images that we, if you know, as you say, if we think about it, Nigeria, you know, what are some of the misconceptions that you would say that you've seen um, over the years? Yeah, so I think in terms of how Nigerians view us, um, it's they get their ideas much the same way that we get our ideas of mm-hmm. them, which is through incorrect media. Mm-hmm. You know, so... Nigerians, for example, they think that every time Americans have dinner, they have like this table that's huge with food everywhere, not realizing that they're getting the image from movies about Thanksgiving, which is a holiday they don't have and don't understand. Right. Mm. They don't know anything about it. Um, So that's so their their image. You know, most of the people that would travel to Nigeria, um, unless somebody like me, who is just a researcher, um, the only other people are business people who tend to be have a lot of money. So their images that Westerners or Americans have a lot of money because yeah. generally those would be the people, the oil people, for example, that are going there, right? Um, also, their image, too, would be that we like to misbehave because many of those business people, um, they're there for prostitution and other things. And so they also have a negative image in some cases of Americans because they see also how they behave wow. while they're there. Um, in terms of how Americans view Nigerians, um, you know, most of the images we get of Africa are of the protected lands in Kenya and Tanzania or South Africa where they have the the lions, you know, mm-hmm. and, and these yeah. long open spaces, which are just protected lands, sort of like our, you know, national forests out west. Mm-hmm. So nobody, not, not really anybody living there, right? <laughs> yeah. And so the images that we get are often not many people are there. Yeah. It's sparsely populated. And, and that's definitely not the case in Nigeria. It's one of the more densely populated countries. Um, half, uh, uh, basically a population of half the population of the U.S. in a country that's a little bit bigger than Texas. Wow. So they actually have more cities with over a million people than the United States. In Lagos, their main port city is over 23 million people. Wow. And so very urban. Um, and so that's the one big shock that people usually have if they travel to Nigeria and they don't know anything about it, is they're shocked at just the urban sprawl. Yeah. When I was visiting my um, in-laws for the first time, their home, it was in a you know what we would kind of call a suburb, but outside of Lagos, the yeah. main city. And you look out. I was standing with her dad looking out across what we could see because they're kind of on a hill. And all I can see is houses everywhere. Wow. And his comment to, to me was, so, Adam, how, how do you like um, the countryside in Nigeria? Wow. And that's definitely, if I bring them here, they'll ask me, how come they're in, the, in a jungle someplace, yeah. right? <laughs> uh, yeah. Nice. All right, so we have to say goodbye to Dr. Adam Paddock, and I appreciate you for coming on. I'm gonna, we're going to take a quick break, and I'll say bye to Dr. Adam Paddock, make sure he gets uh, to his correct place and higher.
Um, so, but yeah, we thank you. It was great talking. I think you brought a lot of knowledge that I didn't even know to the program. Well, thanks for inviting me, Kendra. I enjoyed it. And nice. Would ha- be happy to do it again sometime. <laughs> oh, yes, that would be great. All right, stay tuned. This is Stay Woke. Trying to find this vibe for long time Always seeming like it's coming on its own time But it feels so good, ain't gonna lie My ride or die, feels so good, ain't gonna lie Not our last goodbye, all the way up and you can't take this Cause it's feeling so real that you can't fake this But it feels so good, ain't gonna lie My ride or die, feels so good, ain't gonna lie Goodbye. We ain't never gonna quit. We ain't never gonna quit it, boy. Nah, we ain't never gonna quit. Nah, 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 we ain't never gonna quit it.
You had. What you had, never be content with what you are. What you are. So that means if I focus on the external, then the internal getting fewer walls. I'm a cheap sinner, deep penner, deep penner, reap penner. To the one who's coming like a thief in the night. So let me tell you what I gotta remember, right? I gotta get it to the middle with my heart, where the devil be sending some dogs to it. Come and get it, boy. Cause I ain't feeling what they feeling. I've been feeling with a feeling that is up to the ceiling, boy. Matter of fact, past that, cause I'm past that feeling that will take me with my past that. Uh-huh. I consider it though, no condemnation, boy, man. He forgiving myself, no self. Bones, Lord. Bones, Lord. And you know I wanna burn from it. Burn from it. Every sin I did commit, uh. What I do? Lord, you know I wanna turn from it. Turn from it. So my sins don't define me. Nah. Man, I know you never heard of it. What? And I'm never living in my past. But you know I gotta learn from Thank it. God. I gotta take every burden that I ever had, lay it at the foot of the cross and put it down. Put it down. Then leave it where it's at, cause I got a tendency to pick it up, man. Look around. Look around. Everybody wanna ask why I do the same stuff if the Lord got a hand in it. But why not let the same stuff with it? Only boss who go and just handle it.
and I'm sick of asking for help because don't nobody wanna get that. And I've been through every single part of the struggle, but when I come and kick it, don't nobody wanna hear that. And I'm approaching 30, got a brother looking at the calendar like, can I get a year back? Or will I ever get the opportunity to come again like I did in 2010? I'm near that, cause I fear that. I don't waste my life for chasing this dream. Can't even take a wife cause I'm thinking about the price and I'm thinking about the life that comes with these things. Have mercy, will I ever get it right? Will I ever learn to fight? What's making me fiend? I'm dirty, cause I got a man and need some intervention cause I'm feeling like I'm reaching the end, so please hurry. Forgives our sacrifice for your name's sake. And my heart's been jacked from all of this pain, ache. Snatched off that mask and placed on my game face. And even when I was going through it, I was just thinking your name's great. Father, forgive me for not forgiving phony friends and my foes. Got a consistent commitment, commits with the cleansing my soul. Father, forgive me for not forgiving phony friends and my foes. Got a consistent commitment, commits with the cleansing my soul. Because I really want to get the chopper like it is that he put the commitment and hit him in the back of the belly. here on the edge this is stay woke and i have a quote the best way not to feel hopeless is to get up and do something don't wait for good things to happen to you if you go out and make some good things happen you will fill the world with hope you will fill yourself with hope and that is our president barack obama i want to thank professor paddock again for blessing stay woke with his knowledge i think it was much needed i learned a lot i hope everybody that was listening learned a lot if you have any questions, comments, or even show ideas, you can go to my Facebook page, facebook.com backslash blackradio11 or Twitter at servingchrist11. Also, if you like what you heard and you want to listen again or tell your friends to listen, you can look for our show on iTunes under 91.7 The Edge WSUW. Quick shout outs to all the family members that are listening or will be listening on the iTunes account. I appreciate that. Of course, my boy T. Lee in the Bay Area, there's your shout-out. Hope you appreciate that one. As always, make yesterday jealous by working harder today and give love even in the darkest times. Up next, we got DJ Special K. He's going to be giving you more hip-hops than you can even handle. So stay tuned. I got Dr. Dre right here.